So we are here nearly at the end of our series about the faith of the meek, embracing the theology of risk, adventure, and courage. And so as we've been doing, uh, we're going to share with you a story of a member of our community who stepped out and took a risk and tells us what happened. I took this. I wanted to, to be able to return back to school or work as a psychotherapist here in the United States because I have to, to pass the test and have the good school to be able to turn back to the university or to work as a psychotherapist. So, uh, what is the what what is the test for? It's for it's it's English for the foreigner. Yes. And so you took the test. And what happened? I took the test, but I I didn't succeed. Uh, I really know that I failed the test, and the test was very difficult for me. Was very hard. I know I did not. I didn't. I didn't pass the test. I didn't succeed. Now I have to plan how can I get time to return back to school because I I want to study and I don't have any option to to continue to work or go to university which I need without the good score in English. I have to return back to school to study English. Beginning to the to the first level. So I hope if you see uh, Jean Luc sometime uh, this morning or this week, you say thanks to him because it takes a lot of courage, doesn't it, to share about a time you take a risk, especially when it doesn't turn out the way we intended. Because this is the risk about taking an adventure. We step out, we go outside our comfort zone, but what could happen? We could get lost. We could fail. Um, and to help us remember that not all adventures we take end up the way we planned, I thought I'd share with you some demotivational posters. I found <laughs> this week online, Ambition, the journey of a thousand miles sometimes ends very, very badly. <laughs> Mistakes. It could be that your purpose, uh, the purpose of your life is to only serve as a warning to others. <laughs> Or perseverance, the courage to ignore the obvious wisdom of turning back. <laughs> People trying things and them ending very badly is written into the story of our scripture as well. So here's a couple, and see if you can help me remember these stories. Jesus returned to his hometown early in his ministry, um, probably hoping that he received a warm reception from those who he had grown up with. But what happened? They tried to kill him. Um, they tried to throw him up, which is about as bad a reception as think as you can get from any group of people, let alone the people who raised you as you could possibly imagine. Another one. So, you might remember the story of the Israelites escaping Egypt, right at the 12 plagues and the Red Sea parts, and they head out in the desert, and where are they headed to? They're headed out to the wilderness, but why are they going? Where's the ultimate destination? The promised land. So they're going to the land that God has promised them, and they get through the desert, and they have these wonderful miracles, and they go through these trials and these tribulations, and they get to the bank of the River Jordan. And on the other side of the River Jordan is finally the land that God has promised to them. And what do they do? Chicken out. They chicken out, they turn around, and they go back into the wilderness for 40 more years. Yes, that's, that's not a story we tell quite often. 
You could say, matter of fact, that one of the overriding themes of Scripture is things did not go according to plan. And this is something that I think many of us can relate to. How many of you had something happen to you this week that did not go according to plan? Anyway, most of us. Failure, in other words, it's an everyday condition, right? If you are alive, and so far as I can tell, most of you are, then uh, you will fail, probably daily. If you're like me, probably hourly. If we're risking anything in our lives, if we're journeying anywhere near our spiritual horizons, then failure will be our traveling companion most of the time, right? So the question becomes not how do we, Michael agrees with me. <laughs> Good job, son. Ten weeks and we're already getting in train. <laughs> so the question becomes not how do we avoid failing, but how do we deal with it when it happens? Now, our culture tells us there are two ways that we can deal with failure, those moments when things don't go according to plan. The first is pretending that everything is actually just fine as hard as we possibly can. And the second is to dissect the experience so that we may assign blame, preferably to others, with the greatest precision possible. But that's, those aren't the only ways that we can deal with those moments when life goes sideways, right? I, uh, I remember a time that, um, that Melissa and I were serving as pastors in, in Haverhill, Massachusetts, a small city. Um, and one of the things we did a lot is we'd have worship in potlucks at our house. And so I remember, uh, we had done this for a while, we were a small community, so pretty much what we'd say to people is, listen, so we're going to be worshiping afterwards, we're going to be eating, so bring something to eat, to share, or something to drink, and then we'll have a meal together afterwards. So it comes around to Easter um, in 2009, and we're going to have this big, like, people are going to be packed into our house for worship in our living room, we're going to have this huge potluck afterwards, and we get there, and we worship, and we kind of spin the potluck roulette wheel, and we come up with one ham and ten desserts. Mostly of the gas station variety, um, with which to serve our guests and celebrate our Lord's resurrection. Um, it was not one of my finest moments as a planner. So how do we approach a situation like that? I'm going to tell you a little bit about how we approached it, and maybe this will give you some ideas about how you can approach those times in life that you will encounter where things do not go as planned. First of all, rather than saying, who can we blame, we ask the question, what can I learn from this? Now, for any of you who might remember as far back as your high school science classes, you probably remember something called the scientific method. Anyone remember the scientific method? Okay, so you ask a question, you develop a hypothesis, an educated guess as to what the answer to that question is going to be. You perform an experiment to see if that hypothesis is correct. But what happens if that experiment does not conform to your hypothesis? Is it considered a failure and you just throw everything out? No. What is it? It's a learning experience. That's right. It's not a failure. It's just more information that we didn't have before. And that gives us a chance to learn and grow without having to blame anybody, including ourselves, for the situations that we come into contact with. So, after Melissa and I played potluck roulette and came up with a hand and 10 gas station delicacies, what do you think we learned? <laughs> you should plan a little more. Maybe we should plan a little more. And every potluck thereafter, we had a sign-up sheet. Um, and we made sure to ask people to sign up for mains, for drinks, for desserts, and yes, please, for vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> Second, so first, what can I learn? Second, 
Remember that it's not the end of the world. I have this sign that actually is sitting next to me on my desk when I do my work. And it says, and this is literally in my awful handwriting, nothing you do or don't do today is as important as you think it is. So, when we had the great Easter potluck disaster of 2009, we didn't say, oh no, the world is ending because we fed people 97% pig flesh and chemicals for Easter, no one will come back and Jesus must hate us now. <laughs> Truth be told, right, these moments come and then they go. And if you thought about it, having that ridiculously unbalanced meal probably bothered us a lot more than it bothered everything else because everyone else had brought their favorite foods. <laughs> In other words, sometimes when we get into these moments, we need to sit back and remember that it's not the end of the world. Life goes on, even if that moment itself is not particularly pleasant. So remember it's not the end of the world, and finally, try, try again. So then, after we asked those questions, after we reflected and regained our perspective a little bit, um, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do after we reflect? Do it over again, right? We pick ourselves up and keep going. It's the only way for us to become better people. It's part of the learning process if we learn what it means to become really human. As Alan mentioned a few weeks ago, because there's also a huge risk that comes when we choose to do nothing, and we choose not to grow and not to learn from our experiences. Or, as Soren Kierkegaard said, to dare is to lose one's footing momentarily, not to dare is to lose one's self. And so, yes, we had many potlucks with that group of people after that Easter, and all of them were much, much better <laughs> than that one. So our culture actually talks about this last piece uh, pretty well. It's actually baked into our most common uh, sayings. So, um, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Right. Why do we fall so we can learn to get back up again? That's right, so we can get up again. So, just to review to see if you were paying attention in the last five minutes. Um, when things don't go incredibly to plan, and you know that maybe you even had a little part to play in it, what do you do? What are the three things? Learn from it. Ask, what can I learn? Next. Yes, remember, it's not the end of the world. And finally, try again. And I think for most garden variety types of failure, these things work pretty well. I think that most of us realize at some level, for instance, that failing to pick up the right type of ice cream at the grocery store does not a catastrophe make. Um, even for those failures of a slightly higher grade, you know, that stupefyingly unsuccessful job interview, that first date that goes horribly sideways 10 minutes into the appetizers, we realize that it's quite possible for us to pick ourselves back up and try again, even if the experience itself is not entirely pleasant, right? However, there are also moments when if life gives you lemons, make lemonade doesn't exactly Right. The moments we reach at the end of our risk, with all those cheerful aphorisms about failure, resilience, and daring, seem just like cruel cliches. Those stories that we find ourselves in, that for better or for worse, but honestly often for worse, 
end up defining the story of our life. Not all of you have experienced, I expect, this type of failure. But I expect at least some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And for those of you who have, let me tell you, so have I. So here's my story. In my previous life, my wife and I planted a church called Abide in Haverhill, Massachusetts. It's hard to explain what it's like to plant a new community of faith, but the best way I can describe it is this. You take the deepest part of who you are, <coughs> your deepest dreams, your greatest hopes, your most closely held ideals, and you try to give them life through the lives of other people. For me, I had chosen to start a new faith community not as kind of an interesting professional experiment, but as simply for me to find a way to follow Jesus that would allow me to keep being Christian. It was a spiritual experiment for me. It was asking the question, so what would happen if you went out into a city, found the people who no one else loved, and just love them like Jesus did, no strings attached. What community would spring up out of that? As it turns out, it was a community that looked like this. And I fell in love with that group of people. With Carla, our strangely sensitive idealist who bounced from job to job, anxiously searching for her purpose in life. For Nick and Mike, two best buds brought together by their experience growing up in the roughest part of the city, of just having gotten out of prison, of going to AA meetings together, who would sit on our couch and giggle together like they were eight-year-old boys. Of John, an old ex-commune living hippie who thought that organized religion was a pile of you-know-what, but put up with us just fine. Of George, who sat in the corner of every gathering and sweated bullets because he had such intense social anxiety, but kept coming back week after week after week because in us, he decided he had found the family that he had been searching for his entire life. It was this strange, oddly profane, publicly broken, utterly beautiful community. And we did everything together. We had dinner together, we studied scripture, we prayed with one another, we picked up trash, we hosted board game nights, we watched football, we just tried to figure out what it means to follow Jesus and move as a community together. It was all that I had dreamed of when I began it. And I remember jumping into the work with feet first abandoned. You know, I think so many of us, right, we spend our life searching for our lives, our life's purpose, right? And I thought, what a gift. What a blessing. Here I am, fresh out of school, and I finally found the thing I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. So we, uh, we threw free markets. For those of you who don't know, a free market is like, um, it's like a flea market, you know, uh, except everything is free. So we just get people to donate good used clothing and houseware and personal care products and DVDs and books, and you put it in a room, and then anyone who comes in the door can just take whatever they like. Um, 
no questions asked. And we jammed 350 people over the course of like three hours into our partner church. And every year, I could see the moment when a party broke out, when all these folks who were used to having to answer 20 different questions in order to receive anything, realized that when we said we were offering this all no strings attached, we really meant no strings attached. So people would come, they would do their shopping in the first 15 minutes, and then they would just hang out and celebrate with their friends and help us pick up. I remember one year, we discovered that one of the ladies there um, was having her birthday that day. So we like ran into the kitchen and found this old cupcake and stuck a candle in it. And then we paused the entire free market and like 150 people stopped what they were doing and sang her happy birthday. And at the end of every free market, we fill three pickup trucks full of stuff to donate to the local thrift shop. It was Jesus multiplying our generosity the way that he would multiply the loaves and the dishes. We worshiped in our living room and backyards. I remember one Easter, we decided that rather than just talking about resurrection, we were going to practice resurrection together in this, um, in this old uh, abandoned park in, in the center of town. And so we got there early in the morning, and we broke out, uh, and, we, and we worshiped, and we brought donuts and coffee, enough for the entire neighborhood, and we brought our rakes, and our leaf blowers, and our trash bags, and we picked up the entire park so that by the time we left at noon, the whole place just sparkled with joy. We bore together the tough times. I mean, shy George, who had found a family in us, passed away very suddenly. And we went to his funeral, and we heard his therapist, who we had never met before in our lives, say, You, the glorious people of the vine, saved, our, saved his life every day. We experienced the full range of joy and sorrow that comes from seeking after the kingdom of God. And sometimes, that meant we made mistakes. Things would go sideways. We'd end up face down in the dirt. And you know what we did? We got up, and we brushed ourselves off, and we kept going. But, as the years crept on, and people came, and then they left, I began to realize that beyond those, all those beautiful moments that I could just tell these incredible stories about, at some point, this thing that you're working so hard to push into reality has to have an energy that goes beyond the power of your own personal idealism. And as I started to get tired, I began to realize that all we had been through, all the ups and the downs, the triumphs, the broken relationships, the constant struggle like Sisyphus that pushed this community up the hill to a better place only to watch it fall back down, Yet again, that despite all my gifts, all my passion, my tears, that ceaseless succession of sun-up to sundown days, that in the end, it was not going to be enough. I still remember that early Saturday in September, when Melissa and I, after yet another fruitless slide down that steep mountain, looked into each other's eyes, and I said, well... I guess that's it. And there we had it. There was no Mr. Holland's opus ending to our ministry in Haverhill. We just concluded with a sad little death-denying worship service that made me so angry I had to walk upstairs and collect myself so I could paint a smile on my face for our last public dinner. 
hard months as we packed up and moved away. And sometimes, a sad little gallery in nine hard, lonely months is all you get for all the years of hard work. That's life. <clears throat> sometimes, when you fall, you don't learn how to fly, you just crash. What's the worst that could possibly happen? Sometimes, as it turns out, the worst is something that's really, really terrible. So, what do you do? When you put yourself out there, when you risk everything, it, it all just ends in a puff of smoke with nothing in your hand but ashes in place. Failure, after all, as the movies tells us, is not an option, especially when there isn't a life lesson wrapped up like the prize at the bottom of a cereal box waiting for you to discover it. Instead, we carry around the shackles of these stories as we frantically pretend that it was all just a road bump on our smooth drive to a happy Mine is not the only or even the most painful type of unhappy ending. Perhaps you have a different one that you're afraid to claim. Perhaps it's the moment that you stepped out and took a risk like I did, to follow your dreams, only to discover that they led you to far more painful places than you could imagine. Perhaps it's the time you stepped out to boldly express your truth, only to find the gift you offered with open hands stamped into the mud. Perhaps it was a relationship that began with such hope and joy of the excitement of discovering a love that was supposed to last a lifetime. But that ends with such It's those moments, and someone says, you know, uh, well, wouldn't you still do it all over again? And you know that the answer should be yes. <laughs> but it's really no. Sometimes life just falls apart, and we get stuck sitting in the rubble in the face of a moment we're not allowed to speak of or claim. And it was in this place when my dream died, the dream I had spent literally half my life preparing for, and left me jobless, burnt out, with nothing but ashes and dust, it was in that place of utter meaninglessness that I encountered God, and very slowly discovered that God was weaving the broken shadow back together. It was the Apostle Paul who understood what it meant to experience life-shattering failure who wrote this. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. God's power, made perfect in our 
weakness. The goodness of life, the goodness of my life, did not have to be defined by this one terribly painful story. Somehow, life continued on through all the rubble, persistently growing new goodness and new beauty, waiting for the moment that I could embrace it again. And now, step by step, for the wife, who I love all the more for having suffered so deeply with her, together on an island that's quietly loving our spirits back to life, with a sun lights up my world every time he smiles, I'm discovering the gift of simply living again. So, um, I don't know where you are, but if you find yourself at a place where you've been knocked down and you can't find a way to get up again, let me tell you, it is in those ruins that we discover our salvation. It is in those broken apart places, those moments of senseless endings, those crashing catastrophes, those dreams that are too soon cut off, that we can, where we can look back and we can see where we turned right and we should have turned left, that is where God beats us and gathers up our whys, our what-ifs, our maybes, the broken shards of our cherished dreams, the vivid pain, the ash-black guilt, and turns it all into rich, dark soil where hope can grow again. It's in those ruins that we can hear God saying, you are not a failure that there is something inside each of us that is so much more beautiful and wonderful than the sum of our stories that begs to be let loose so it can lead us into joy. And it is there that we discover God taking those moments that scar us for a lifetime and turning them into furrows where God can sow God's love. In a moment, you'll be handed a piece of seed paper. Um, and I invite you to write down on it in a word or a phrase that failure, garden variety, or life-defining that you're carrying with you right now. Then I invite you to come up to one of these pots we have up front and plant it as a sign of your willingness to turn over that moment to the care of so that together we can remember as a community the one who grows goodness and the broken places of our lives. Come forward as you are ready.